everybody, and welcome to Business Meet Spirituality, where we believe in personal growth through business success. Today, we have an episode for you from a talk Hallie and I did about the importance of decisions you make as a leader. By making quality decisions, you can make major changes in your organization. We cover how your principles or belief system can help guide your decision making and the principles that help business leaders like Ray Dalio and Jeff Bezos make decisions. The ideas we discuss can help you use less of your energy to make decisions, make better quality decisions, and avoid decision fatigue. Enjoy the show, and be sure to check out the show notes on our website to get the links to all the resources we discussed in the episode. Just go to adamhergenrother.com slash podcast. All right. In any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing. The next best thing is the wrong thing. And the worst thing you can do is nothing. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful quote. And... Um, one of the things that we think about and I try to teach my kids every day is like, how do you take one small step, one action item when it feels stuck? How do you just, how do you take one, one decision that's in front of you and make it? And that's kind of what we're going to be breaking down today is how do you take that next step? Because a lot of times in business, understand, you can feel like you're in the middle of the forest and there's a dense fog and you don't even know which way to go. Now paralysis can sit in, but in any moment of decision, the best thing you can do is the right thing, obviously. Right. And we're going to talk about how do you get and position yourself to do the right thing? the entire purpose of being a leader or the CEO of your life is to make quality decisions that you, for your life and for your business. And so then the question always becomes, if that's the end goal, which is to make quality decisions, which Jeff Bezos talks about how his number one goal as a leader was to make three quality decisions a day. That was it. So then we work, we break it down and say, well, how do we put ourselves in positions to make the best quality decisions for our organization and for our life? And that's kind of what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. And we specifically wanted to talk about this concept about uh, why decisions are so important. So for a lot of different um, roles in the organization, let's say marketing or even your CFO, their deliverables or their products, um, well, the, easy, the easiest example is like a product manager, somebody who actually delivers maybe a tech product. That is their product. Marketing staff or marketing team, their product might be a new advertising campaign or a um, launching a new marketing campaign. That is their product. A CFO's product might be the financial statements. But for leaders, we're not necessarily produce. And that, when I say leaders, I do mean the force multipliers, the executive assistants, and chiefs of staff as well. Our decision, our products aren't necessarily a tangible thing. They're actually our decisions, and that is why what we deliver is is decisions. And that's why it is such an important topic, which we will get into today. It is. I also think it's important to help delivering the decisions, but also just the, the aid. How do you get to like the best decision possible? Right. That's, that's really what we're driving after. So most important thing you can, is that you develop your own principles and ideally write them down, especially if you're working with others. And Ray Dalio, I think is one of the, the geniuses behind, if you haven't read any of his material or his books of just really creating a radical work environment where questions and things are asked um, without ego and without um, resentment. Uh, and so that you can really, what you can do is develop principles for you and for the organization that people can follow. So actually I was reading, it's funny, Hallie, you taught me on, uh, on uh, Jocko Willink's book, Willink, right? Yeah. His book about the warrior kid. And like, there's a, there's a chapter in there. Have you read it yet? Have you actually read the books? Hallie? Well, no, I have not. Okay. Yeah. And no, that's not the warrior kid, but anyways, and I read it in there. There's a whole chapter about the creed or the manifesto or the principles of like basically going back to like the 1500s of like 
samurai you know soldiers to like the the navy seals to the green berets and they have like their own ethos their own set of principles it was really interesting to read those to him um and he he, asher was like because it kind of goes in there like talking about these are these for these people what are yours and that's kind of what we're getting here too is a framework for how you live and how you make decisions so what are principles right a fundamental truth or a proposition that serves as a foundation for a system of belief of behavior or for a chain of reasoning right so what does it mean to you when i think about principles hallie well uh but values but also the important part for me is writing them down and sharing them especially for leaders because they're the driving force behind not only your vision, your culture, but actually it's a fra- it's the it's the guiding framework for how you actually go about making decisions. That's and it makes decision right. making incredibly easy both for you and for the other people in your organization if you're very clear on those principles because it's it almost they become no-brainers to a certain degree when you are uh, not comparing them, but when you are analyzing them against your principles. Yeah. You know, for one, if there's a, if there's a principle, it's like win-win or no deal, you can go in there. It's the easy decision-making It's like, is the other person winning and am I winning? Right. Or is the other person losing? Cause you don't, in business, you don't really typically need somebody else to lose so you can win in sports. Yeah. That's kind of true. Everyone kind of understands those rules, but in business, both people can win. And if that's one of your principles, then, then making that decision in terms of how everybody wins is much easier to do. So then what is a manifesto, right? It's a written statement declaring publicly the intentions, motives, or views of the issuer, right? A statement of your principles. And we kind of give you a couple examples here. So principles for success for Ray is number one, pain plus reflection equals progress. And you've probably heard of it if you've watched any videos, he talks about this a lot. That pain plus reflection is this circular progress, which basically every time there is a, some sort of pain in your business and your personal life, you're supposed to reflect. As you reflect, it allows more progress to happen and then you take the action from the progress and it kind of repeats itself in these cycles. And so it's really important. I love that first one. I'm not going to go into detail on every one of them, but that first one speaks a lot to how we can, as a principle for life, because life is going to be painful or challenging at times. It just is. This is what life is. It's not supposed to be easy for you. So when it happens, instead of beating yourself up or becoming a victim, you just go, let me reflect on this. Then let me figure out how I can make progress from this so I can move everything forward. Number two, meaningful work and meaningful relationships are the greatest assets and the greatest rewards. Number three, don't let your ego and blind spot barriers stand in your way. Get a coach, have somebody else be able to point something out to you. Yesterday I was on a call and I realized there was a, something that I was doing that I hadn't really noticed in leadership and it was, it was really um, fascinating. Number four, own your outcomes, right? Number five, be radically truthful and radically transparent in what you're doing. And that's that radical, truthful and radically transparent. Now, truthful doesn't mean you're telling somebody what you think of them. It just means that you are being, you're being very clear and you're not high, you're not not saying something because of fear, and you're not not saying something because you're 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 worried about an outcome. You've actually let go of the outcome, and you're able to be radically truthful and transparent in communication. Therefore, there happens to be no energy behind it if you're radically transparent. Therefore, the actual best outcome can happen from it. Number six, make your make your work and your passion one and the same, and do it with people you want to be with. I mean, forget the hours that you end up spending with people that you work with. You might as well find people that you really enjoy working with. Number seven, understand people are wired very differently. So it's wise to see things through the eyes of smart people who see things differently from you. One of the really neat things, and how I know you've seen this a lot, is, is having a very diverse leadership team. Everybody sees it so differently. And I think one of the cool, challenging things about building a big leadership team is actually managing or leading all these people who think differently. 
because somebody sees something and they're like, well, that's not right. And you see it. So being transparent and, and, and radically and open and making that the staple of your, of your conversations with people is really fundamentally um, important because of how different everybody see it. Hallie sees something different than I see it. Right. And I see it differently than Hallie sees it. And everybody sees something differently. And the really interesting thing is that you're both right. Or three people are right. They just see different parts of it. So then how do you, as a leader, triangulate all that information, right? Number eight, evolve or die. It's never the stagnant. Number nine, you get virtually anything you want, but not everything you want. So you need to prioritize well. And this comes down to the power. Most of us right now are saying yes to way too many things. Therefore, our dilution of focus, dilution of cognitive energy, dilution of our actions prevent us from actually getting really good at certain things. And the reason why that is, is because we just keep saying yes to too many things that we think are going to be the things that we need to do. Instead of, I gave the example yesterday with somebody, I said, what if, what if Tiger Woods decided to wake up and play basketball, then baseball, and then read and play the piano and then hit some golf balls? You know, he, he would be a totally different person, but he wouldn't be nearly as good at golf as he is now. The reason why he was so good at golf is because all he did is wake up and breathe and sleep and eat golf, period. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I'm just saying he got so focused on that. That's why he became so good. The uh, only thing I wanted to add here is that these are all great principles, but two, two things. Uh, it's very important to create your own because you can very clearly see from Ray's, you can understand his culture. And if you read the rest of them, you would very clearly be able to see, see and feel his culture. For example, evolve or die is a very strong statement. And you might see in your principle might uh, not be that at all. It might be a little softer. It might be worded differently. So it's just um, really important to make sure that you don't just adopt any of these blindly and make sure that they really actually speak to what is important to you because they will be the uh, framework for how you would go about making decisions for your company. Yeah, I love that. So again, our, our, our uh, friend, Jeff, Basil's principles, right? And I, I love a lot of his. You can just give you different examples so you can see what these look like. So you can start formulating your own. You may steal one or two of these, but the key is to make sure that you're explaining kind of how he said what it actually means to you and how in the context of the entire organization. So for his is number one, use the regret minimization framework. And really what that means is that what he basically is saying, if I am 70 years old sitting in a rocking chair, or 80 years old sitting in a rocking chair, am I going to regret not taking this action? Am I going to regret not doing this? Right. And that's, that's number one. That's, that was his kind of main, he uses that as the rep minimization framework because before he started Amazon, he actually had a very high end job working in wall street. And he used this kind of regret minimization framework to actually leave his job when people told him they shouldn't to go start Amazon, right? Uh, and then he's used that as his staple and his principle because that was something that worked for him early on. Find the right opportunity, right? Meaning the marketplace, whatever that looks like. Number three, be customer obsessed, right? I mean, Amazon is certainly customer obsessed, particularly with... Um, um, with, with pricing and ease and frictionless transactions. I mean, Amazon, I mean, I just don't even, sometimes I'm in a grocery store and I'm two aisles away from something. And I just know that I can, it's easier for me to go on Amazon later and order it than for me to walk two aisles down and get it. Right. Sorry. I was going to just add that you can, you can see how they make decisions based on that one principle, right. The, the decisions that they've made for some of the, uh, the features that they add, um, or the next thing that they acquire. Well, I was going to say, and that we talk about the positive, but the cust be customer obsessed also has the negative or a shadow side to it, which means that it puts out a lot of other people out of business. 
So he actually went to war with a lot of other organizations because he basically cut pricing for so long that he bled, if you will, other organizations, which is why Jeff has this kind of people either love him or hate him or kind of situation where he's in because his decision to be so customer obsessed focused actually hurt other organizations. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. That was the shadow side of the decision of being so customer obsessed that they held the line for basically to, to, you know, other companies to basically burn through their capital and not be able to do it and either have to sell and or close their shop down. Number four, make your value exceed all the costs constantly. You can see that, like Hallie said, fear customers, not competitors. Again, that's exactly what I was talking about there is he could, in their framework, right or wrong, they didn't care about the competitors. They cared, they want to wake up and say, I fear our customers not buying through us, right? Not about customers. So we focus on that, not on our competitors. He said in an example of the city, walk into boardrooms and he said, one day people were talking about all of our competitors and he goes, what are you guys doing in here? Everyone should be focused on the customer, not using us, not the competitor. And that, again, that was the framework and it changed the decision-making. So now what people are focused on, the million people that are there, they understand these principles to a certain extent. Number six, focus on the long-term, which we saw. Again, Amazon will go down in history as being one of those companies that didn't turn a profit for so long because they were so focused on the long-term and could care less about the quarterly results. Um, well, care less isn't the right word. They were much more focused on the long-term. They care about actually maximizing something that's there. Feed the flywheel, basically... You know, the reason why Amazon even still exists today, I actually didn't realize when I read a couple of his books, how close Amazon was to not actually being Amazon. And what pulled them out of, of losing money was this flywheel, which is they realized that um, their web uh, storage solutions was very profitable. And so they went out there in their, in their AWS, which is Amazon's web services, makes, still makes up like 70% of their profit. That's how they started making actually money. People just didn't realize that. That was part of their flywheel. Basically, anything that we do, um, that we transact with, we want to own. That's why you see them now owning Rivian, which is a company that they invested $500 million into to start being electric vehicles that powers their driving, right? The, their delivery vehicles. That's why they started pulling back from UPS or FedEx, right? All those things. Higher for intensity, we, you know, you read articles about him before, about what that looks like. Number nine, protect your culture at all costs. Whatever your culture is, you should protect it. Again, be very clear in what your culture is and then protect it. Number 10, know what kind of decision you're making. That is the, um, the kind of, the, he refers to them as one-way or two-way doors. One-way doors are, you can, once you make the decision, it's very difficult to come back from it. Be very difficult to come back. A two-way decision is you can make it and come back. So they should be, make sure that if you're making a two-way decision, you probably don't need to spend a week on it, right? It may just be a much quicker decision. If it's a one-way, you may delay the decision-making process to ensure you've, you've actively made that decision. Number 11, listen to your critics, but not too much. Awesome. So again, all, the whole point of really sharing those principles is because that is really the foundation of the rest of the stuff we're going to talk about, which is making those great decisions um, as a leader. So resulting, this is, I first heard this term in a really great book, um, and we'll probably send out a, a book list as well of some uh, um, great books like Bet on Yourself, which was Jeff Bezos's chief of staff. She wrote that book, Think in Bets, Thinking in Bets. That's another great book. But anyway, um, resulting is this thought process where we are evaluating our the quality of our decisions based on the outcome that they achieve. And that's basically, if we get a good result, we assume that we made a good decision uh, or it's because we did something right. And if we didn't get the result we wanted, it's, we assume it's because we did something wrong. But that's actually not the case. Bad results and bad decisions are not the same thing. You can have, um, let's use Jeff Bezos' principle as an example of the one-way door. 
as a two-way door, you can have an incredibly great one-way decision-making process. You've consulted the right people, you've read the research, you've analyzed the different possibilities, and the outcome may still not be what you wanted it to be because you can't actually predict an outcome no matter how great the decision-making process is. So therefore changing your behaviors or your principles based on the result is not always wise. You took the time to develop those, those key principles that are going to decide your decision, are going to guide your decision-making. And if every time a, an outcome doesn't happen, you go back and try to change your principles, that's not actually the best way to go about making decisions long-term. So most of our decisions are really just bets. We're betting on a future version of ourselves. We're betting on a future result that may or may not come true. Um, so we cannot guarantee how it will actually turn out. And if the result does not turn out the way you thought it would, that's where you can learn from that, make another decision if needed. Um, and then again, bets are based on our belief system, which is why, again, it's so important to start with those principles um, and be open to learning and questioning those beliefs and solidifying your principles based on whether it's having conversations with your team, having conversations with your coach, trusted advisors, your board members, so that you are operating from a really clear set of principles and therefore decision-making does become easier. One thing I was just gonna mention there is that it's really important too that sometimes when you make a decision and, it's the, and it actually turns out, you actually just got lucky in the probability sequence. So it's always like, you can't always assuming, assure that that decision led to that outcome because it was the decision. It could have been other factors, just like on the conversely, if you made a decision, it didn't work out the way, you don't always need to scrap it. You need to evaluate it. And if you made a decision, it worked out favorably, you need to, you need to analyze it and don't just blindly think that that's the way that's going to lead to the next decision. And we've seen that with entrepreneurs before as well too. Right, yeah, and which is why it's, I think it's really important to, um, track or journal about your decisions because you can actually learn um you can learn where luck came into play you can learn where the market conditions came into play you can learn where it was actually your very very clear and strategic decision making process that came into play to provide a specific outcome or not to provide the outcome but to increase the probability of the, the outcome that you wanted happening and decision fatigue is real <laughs> Right. There's a reason why that, um, you know, Steve Jobs probably started this more than anybody did in terms of his, his apparel that he wore every day because he didn't want to make another decision. I mean, that's literally ultimately he's like, I wore black every day because internal next because I want to go in my, my closet and not have to make another decision. And we've all been there before, right? Where it's just like you're making decision after decision. And even the smallest decision, you can be making decisions all day. And you go home, you're like, hey, what do you want for dinner? And you're like, I just don't want to make another decision, right? There's a real, the presidents of the United States have these things, why their, their suits are laid out for them ahead of time. And, and it's really part of that, the, the decision, decision fatigue is that deteriorating quality of decisions made by an individual after long session of decision-making. Another great example on Jeff Bezos, he talks about making three quality decisions, not a hundred, not 50, but three. And after that, he may stop making decisions. And I think he says that he makes all his decisions between like before one is what it was, because after that, his decision-making isn't as sharp. And so if it has to be made, he'll make it the next morning, but three quality decisions in a period of time. So understanding the, the, the weight of that decision that you're making, I'm sure he's making decisions at one o'clock and two o'clock, but the weight of those decisions need to be important because it really is. 
So minimize decision fatigue and streamline decision-making as much as you absolutely can with your principles, right? Because that is a guiding factor for what it is. The reason why you have principles, it's like a roadmap. It's like how you drive to work every day or how you put your, your pants on the same leg at a time. It's just, it's using less energy, right? So that's why you're, you're using these set of principles is to guide your decision-making. So it's not a entrepreneurial task every time to think about making a decision. And again, why I personally push off decisions. There's a lot of times there's 10 decisions to be made and I'll make three of them. Seven of them, I don't, right? Seven of them could be that one, I just need more information or I just don't want to answer them. I also will delete some things in my inbox that I just don't want to deal with ever. And if it comes back up, it comes back up. Um, or sometimes Hallie will retrieve them from my trash folder and make sure that she, um, that she or her and I get together and, and make the right decision or, or answer that person. Now they're not, major decisions that need, but there are decisions that need to happen. But sometimes there's just so many decisions. And here's the thing. One thing that executives that isn't always um, talked about is that, and it's a lot of weight, even if it's one or two decisions and you're going, just make decision. There's so much weight because when you see things the way executives see things, you're looking at everything. So you're feeling the weight of that decision for every person in your organization, your clients, your consumers, how's this going to impact in the future. So you're just, you're just seeing the entire decision-making unfold. And so when you try to throw in something else in there, almost like it's like derailing that decision-making that you need to have. That's why decision-making principles are so important. But this reason why we push off decisions is because of that, and we, and it's, you got to let us, right? You just, you have to, because if we don't answer it, there's a reason why we didn't answer that decision. Then other times I may walk in there and you can solve five of them really quickly because you have clarity. You've, you've removed, moved on from the cognitive energy of that larger decision that was blocking you from making other ones. There's other things you can be doing in there too, but that's one of the main reasons. Go ahead. Can I add one thing to that? I was going to say as a force multiplier, that's why it's important to one, be that, that safety net for your executive. Like Adam mentioned, just knowing what those decisions are that they're pushing off so that they don't get forgotten because while they don't seem important, it, they're not important until they are important. And so you've got to just make sure that they're, you're ready for them. And then also always keeping a list of those running small questions so that the second your executive is ready, like, oh yeah, those, those 10 emails you sent me, I'm ready to answer them now. And they come into your office or they call you. Well, you just got to be ready for them. Yeah. And I will say, it's not we forgot about them. We know they're there. We're just not ready to answer them. Um, and that's, and then right. at times we could be ready to answer him. So it's part of that. Yes. The 47 year rule, which is from Colin Powell, right? Um, he talks about if you don't have 40% of information, you're making the decision too early. But if you have, if you're looking for more than 70% of the information, you're probably missing an opportunity. So the sweet spot in decision-making ability is that 40, 40% to 70% of the information that you need to make a decision based on the weight of the decision that you're making. Obviously, if it's a larger decision, it's more than that 70. If it's a quicker decision, make sure you have some information there, that 40%. And again, um, focus on what you can decide, right? For force multipliers. There's a lot of things. If you just get the answer from your executive once, you don't have to ask them multiple times. So that can be small things from like, what do you, what are your meal preferences to larger decisions about like their travel preferences to um, even bigger, bigger decisions. And this is again, why it's really important to be journaling this and, and writing it down and sharing with your executive and with your executive assistant or chief of staff, um, because you actually start to understand exactly how they would make a decision. And for a lot of things, you just, you just do the decision because you already know how they would answer it. Or even things like um, creating frameworks around the uh, amount of money your executive is comfortable with you spending without um, running it by them. Once you know what that answer is, anything that falls on in line with that is just your decision to make. So thinking about 
little places throughout your day or throughout your week where you can create that framework um, and then just make the decision without even bothering them. As a force multiplier, um, one of the best ways you can actually help your executive decision-making is to ask questions to drive clarity, to help with prioritization, um, ultimately to help with decision-making and execution. So questions like, um, what is the desired outcome and what is the result that you're looking for with this new project? Once you know that, you actually later can make that one decision or that one comment and you can go do the rest of the planning. Um, actually, we did that recently, Adam, when I just I just had those couple of questions for you about a meeting I was about to have. Yep. You were able to make two very key decisions. I can take care of the rest once I had that, that initial framework about what that outcome was that you wanted. And then you know, I'm going to go probably for weeks off of that and do the rest of the work. Or, you know, what problem are you actually trying to solve here? Is that the real problem? Is there a bigger problem that you are ignoring? Now, while that might not be an actual decision, it does help them with their thought process, which ultimately will lead to collectively as an organization to better decision making. And then two other quick things about decision making. It's always important to know who owns the decision um, in that almost even in the um, whether it's throughout a division, whether it is in your department, whether it's in various companies. While there may be 20 people who help with a decision, while there might be three people who have very key roles in executing a project, there's ultimately one person who's responsible for the decision, who owns the decision over particular aspects of the role and if you or role or company. And if you don't know who those people are, it's very helpful and important to go back through your leadership team, your your departments, or even just with yourself and your executive and figure out who actually owns the decision. It makes things a lot easier. Um, also, once you're kind of given that permission from your executive or from other parties, it is freeing. And then you can go back about your day that much faster and things just get done much quicker. And then also being aware of the sunflower effect, which basically means um, everybody, if the executive is making a decision or making a statement first, everyone looks to them like a sunflower and says, okay, that must be what, that must be the right answer, or that must be the decision we have to agree to. Uh, hopefully you don't have people like that in your organization. We're very lucky where we have a lot of people who are totally comfortable with disagreeing, but that doesn't always happen. Um, so to mitigate that entire thing from happening, have your leader always speak last when you're in a team setting or when you're at a leadership meeting, let everyone else voice their opinion, let everyone else say what decision they would make. And then your leader can chime in at the end and either say yes, no, or here's what I would do. And oh, and the other thing about that I was going to add is that often goes for the executive assistant or chief of staff as well, depending on the construct of your organization, because they believe that you're thinking you are often speaking on behalf of your leader. So if you're also the first one to speak, they it may actually shut down some of the conversation or may shut down some other opinions or ideas as well. Do you then yeah, Go ahead. <laughs> I was going to end with this decision-making yeah. framework. I think it's so important. We started the conversation off by saying the quality of your life is determined by the quality of decisions that you make. And so the, the purpose, that, that's the end result of those things. Then how do you make yourself in a position to make the best quality decisions? Number one is getting centering yourself and getting very, very clear. A lot of different ways, so many different techniques out there, meditation, journaling, exercise, just to get clarity of what decision you actually have to make and how you're making it, right? This slide could be its own 30 minutes in itself, right? Determine the ideal long-term outcome of what you're making decision. That's what I was saying before is when you're thinking through a big decision, what is the long-term outcome? What is the chess move here? Because a long-term outcome is going to come 
faster than you think it will. So make sure that when it shows up, it's something that you actually wanted to occur, right? Triangulate information means that you're, as a leader and you're making a decision for somebody, if you're, if you're owning a decision or you're helping somebody own a decision, you should make sure that everyone in the room has spoken their, 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 their either desire or their comments or their um, transparency or their outlook on things or their meeting minutes, whatever it is that people are seeing things differently around a project or an outcome or decision, let everybody speak. And then you make the decision. It's like, and if somebody's going to disagree in there, they can disagree and commit. It's another Jeff Bezos thing, right? We're meaning that I disagree with you, Hallie, but I'm going to commit to it, which means that in six months, if it doesn't work, you're not going to hear me say, I told you so. Once everybody in that meeting says, I disagree, but I'm committing, everyone's on board there. That if you don't agree, if you have a problem and you can keep saying it and saying it until everyone is in that room, is going to disagree and commit or they're going to commit wholeheartedly. It's really important as a leadership team. That way, when everyone walks out of there and decisions made, there's not a hesitation as to why that decision was made. It's not, I'm better than you. I told you so. It's, we agreed and this is the decision that we're making. So speak your truth while you're triangulating all the information that's in there. Decide and communicate the decision. This is where the force multiplier can really have a major impact here. Whereas that they're taking that, once the decision's made, they're communicating that to everybody. That can be through email, through a, through a um, you know, through an announcement, uh, that can be through a video, that can through be an in-person event, that can, or all of the above. That can be through your press that you want your employees to hear. Sometimes the best way to do is actually write an article and send it to your team that somebody else did it. So they're reading it from a different source, but you wrote it for them. Actually, one of the advice I ever got was you should always write to who your employees or your customers are, right? Just like meeting your people. So they're seeing what you're writing because they're the ones going to be reading it. And refocus well, all the team. I would say is make sure you communicate it to your internal staff first. That you don't want them to see breaking news in the press. Yes, that's yes, yes. But once you did, is you're reinforcing that decision. You can do it right. in the press so that they see it. So they're reinforced the idea of what um, of what you're saying for that decision. And then once you've made the decision, refocus the team and execute. Right. You once you do it, you here we are. We're on the starting line. Let's refocus the team. What's our next execution that we have to focus on? Hey everybody, thanks for listening today. To learn more about how leaders and their assistants can make bigger, better decisions by working together to lead their organizations, check out our book, The Founder and the Force Multiplier on Amazon. You can also listen to a clip of the audio version on our website at founderandforcemultiplier.com slash book. Thousands of people have used our book to help level up their business and careers. Hear what a recent reader had to say. I bought the book in Audible in paperback form. I loved listening to the author's down-to-earth style while making notes in the paperback. Hallie and Adam have shared their roadmap to a successful partnership and for entrepreneurs, SMBs, and their assistants and founders. This book is a must. Thank you for leaving a review, L. Bradley. Check out the Founder and Force Multiplier on Amazon or our website today. And thank you again for listening to our podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. See you next week for another episode of Business Meets Spirituality.